Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. The sermon series for the spring and summer is called Conversations. Each week we will take a topic and have members of our congregation talk about it in a pre-taped interview. These conversations are not scripted, and they form the foundation of the sermon being spoken about that day. I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Our first reading this morning comes from the 21st chapter of John's Gospel. It is uh, the scene where Jesus is uh, making a post-resurrection appearance to his disciples. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said, and Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, You will stretch out your hands, and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today, it comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. This comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it is when Jesus is going through a lot of his different teachings, and this is his teachings on enemies. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So today we are talking about love as risk. That is the title of the sermon. And as we get into this, uh, each week what we do is we show clips from different people in our congregation who we've asked questions uh, about this particular topic. I just want to say before we get into that, that next week is the last sermon in this series. And we have selections from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony that are going to be played here. And so I hope that you come out to that. It's going to be a really nice way to end it. And hopefully it'll all come together in a very beautiful way. So I hope that you can come out to that. But today, let's see what our members had to say about love as risk. 
She's mellow. <laughs> Who is the person you love the most? Just to make sure I don't get in trouble, I have to say my husband. No. <laughs> yeah, I guess each other. Even though we have a baby coming, so maybe that baby might take the um, take the priority over him. But we'll see how that goes. Well, I love my daughter Annie the most. And I love her for everything that she is, her beauty inside, even though sometimes I get frustrated <laughs> with her. Um, I love everything about her. Because I'm single, never married, no kids. So for me, it's like more focused towards my family. Um, I love my younger brother most. I would have to say it's my friend Colleen. Um, she has just always been, from the time that we met, we mm -hmm. had a connection that was 30-some five years ago. I feel like there's different kinds of love, so I, I don't know if I could say one person. I have different... I love you the most as a husband and someone to spend the rest of my life with. But I love my parents in their own way and our son. And the comfort that we're being watched over is another love. Why do you love that person so much? She's very opposite. I shouldn't say very, but she's some of the things she does, I don't do. Some of the things I do, she doesn't do. So we kind of complement each other. He's my younger brother. And uh, the reason why I love him, because he's very easygoing and he's very uh, funny. Uh, so he always make uh, jokes and always make you smile and laugh. We just would have these long conversations. And back then, you didn't have Skype or email or anything. So we would have these tremendous long, <laughs> tremendously long phone conversations that ran into some money, you know. And um, her husband wound up calling them Bethathons, accepting of all of my great qualities and my not so great qualities that show up occasionally um, and just like that I can feel like I can be who I am in front of him. I don't ever feel like I have to pretend to be somebody that I'm not. Do you think loving someone with all your heart is risky? No, yeah, I think it's risk <laughs> because you don't want to get hurt and if you give somebody your heart there's always that chance you're going to get hurt. And I think also you you're more vulnerable when you love someone because you open up to that person and you can be yourself, like you can be yourself with your brother and yeah. you can just, you know, he accepts you for who you are yeah. and you don't have to pretend you are just who you are. The risk was like, all right, is this person going to accept me for who I am? Am I going to, you know, feel like I can love that person and they'll love me back forever? And I think once I accepted myself and was like, this is what I want out of a relationship, then I was able to take that risk and be like, all right, I know that this is what I want, so I'm going to risk it. Being divorced, it is. You, when you love someone, you risk losing them, no matter how it is uh, that you lose them. Uh, and um, it, it is hard. It's hard not to um, have resentment sometimes. And, um, and, you know, I've needed to work on forgiveness, which is, um, which is not always easy. Do you think loving someone with all your heart is worth the risk? I think it's because we just see the rewards around us. I mean, I know like I've saw my grandparents their whole life and the love that they had for each other and the, what they built because of it in the family. And I think um, you see those rewards in TV and movies. I mean, God knows there's enough <laughs> chick flicks out there that show you this, this idealized relationship out there, which 
isn't true necessarily, but you just see all the, the things that can come of taking that risk, and so it becomes worth it for you at some point. Because the reward is so great. Yeah. I mean, I can't... Um... It's hard to trust people these days. It's hard to... There's so much going on where you think you trust somebody and they turn around because they're just looking out for themselves. A lot of selfishness. When you love somebody at, without risk and you've given them your heart, then you have that trust. I can't imagine a life without love. I, I, I just can't, you know. Um, and, and, and I just don't mean a boyfriend or um, a male companion. Um, but friends, um, that unconditional feeling that you get and, and give um, to a person that you, you care deeply about. Oh my goodness, your life would be gray and dull without loving someone. It's like taking all the colors out of the rainbow kind of thing. You know, it's worth it. It is so worth it. It's so rewarding because when you give love, you also get love. So today we are talking about love, and I want to start by asking you a question, which is, what does being in love mean to you? What does being in love mean to you? I think that's a deceptively simple question, isn't it? Because I think all of us in here, we know the feeling of being in love, but I think putting that feeling into words is actually really hard for us to do. And whenever I have trouble kind of putting something into words, I'm such a nerd, I go to the dictionary. That's kind of how I deal with things. And so I always wonder, what's the definition? And so I looked it up. And the two definitions, you see that there's actually two different kinds of words for love because love can be a noun. It can also be a verb. So in, when you're looking at the noun love, we're talking about an intense feeling of deep affection. And then if you look at the verb... It's a deep, romantic, or sexual attraction to someone. Now, is that very fulfilling to you? Do you think that kind of nails it right there, those two words, the definitions? Guess you do, yeah? No? It's okay. Last service was real rough on me, so come on. you got to stay with me on this one, okay? You got more sleep, supposedly, than they did. One of the problems with the English language is that English, as wonderful as it is, it's really a language that has sucked up a lot of words from other languages. We've kind of incorporated them, and as a result, we've kind of lost a lot of the meaning that you find in a lot of the words. We don't actually know the meanings in the way that if you went to the original language, you might understand them better. And one of the great things about these other languages, which I find to be really fascinating, is that you can have one word that stands for this whole really neat concept and idea that we don't have anything like in our, in our language. So let me give you an example. There's the Yangon language in Tierra del Fuego. There's this word. It's this amazing word. It's called Mamila Panatapai. Mamila Panatapai. Yes, that was a very hard word to memorize and to learn. Mamila Panatapai is this really fascinating word because it has to do with love, actually. And if you look at the definition... It says that it's when two people, they're looking at each other, hoping the other will do what both desire, but neither is willing to do. So that's what that word means. Let me give you an example. So it would be like, 
two tribal leaders. They're standing there. They're looking at each other. They both want peace, but neither of them is willing to initiate that peace for fear of looking weak. Or when two people, they see each other across a room for the first time, and there's that spark, right, where they have that attraction to each other, but neither of them is willing to move across the room to make that first move to initiate. Mamila Panatapai. All of that's built into that one word. How neat is that, right? But in English, what did I have to do? I had to sit here, and I had to give you a definition and two examples to make you understand what that word is all about. Another problem with the English language that you come across is that we tend not to have enough words to really describe the words that we find in other languages. So when you come across certain words, they're going to get translated the same way. So for instance, in the Greek language, there are literally 30 different words for love. 30 different words. Now why do they have 30 different words? They have 30 different words because they understand that people experience love in profoundly different ways. But when we translate all 30 of those words, how do we translate them? Love, 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 all the way down, right? Which is why Americans, I think, are seen as being so wordy. You know, foreigners are like, you Americans, you just talk all the time. And it's why my sermons are so long, because we (laughs) have to explain everything, right? I got to get up here and I'm just going to, I'm going to use that as my excuse for why my sermons take so long to preach. So that question that I asked you in the beginning, what does being in love mean to you? For us, we kind of have to just talk and talk about it. But in other languages, you might have just one or two words, and everybody's like, yeah, no, that's right. That's what it means right there. So pastors, what they tend to do when they're talking about love is they go to the Bible, and in the New Testament, of those 30 words in Greek, there are four that come up very, very frequently that talk about love. So there's storge, that's the first one, and that, that has to do with familial love. That's love of family, right? The next is philia, which is friendship love. So that's when you have love for a friend. The next is eros, which is erotic or romantic love. And the final one is agape, which is this unconditional or God love. It's kind of a way to think of it. Now, each of us in here, we have experienced these different kinds of love. And as you heard Susan Aguia talk about, remember when it was like, who do you love most? And she kind of turns to her husband, Fernando, and says, well... I can't just name one person. I mean, I love you. You're my husband. And, you know, I I love my parents, and I love my child, and I love God. And the truth is, is that that's the way it is. We all have these different kinds of love. And so it's helpful to understand that that English word love, even though we only have really the one word, that there's all these dimensions and different layers to the word love, right? And I think that this idea that love has these different dimensions and these different layers is something that is really, really lacking in our culture. Because, in my opinion, one of the big reasons why the institution of marriage is failing so badly in America is that we associate the word love predominantly with eros, which is the sexual attraction kind of love. Would you agree with me on that? That we do. Okay, so that's where we see love is with that. And there's only one little problem with that, is that that eros is very temporary. It doesn't last forever. In fact, the Greeks, this is very interesting, the Greeks, they were very cautious of eros. They thought it was very dangerous, because eros could literally possess you. It could take you over and make you crazy. But in our culture, 
The only kind of love worth having is if you're head over heels crazy in love for someone, right? Like, that's the love we say. If you're not like that, then you're not in love. But the problem with that way of looking at it is that when you define love as being eros, when that eros eventually fades away, which it inevitably will, then you're left in this situation of saying, well, I'm no longer in love with this person. So rather than transition to these other layers of love, you sit there and say, well, I think I've made a mistake. And so in making a mistake, you think, well, maybe I need to go out and find somebody else who will keep that eros alive indefinitely. And nowhere is this concept of love more promoted than in the movies, right? Now, you heard Ryan Zykes, he was talking about, he talked a little bit about those romantic comedies. Have you ever seen a romantic comedy before, any of you in here? Maybe once or twice you've seen one? Okay, so romantic comedies, how do they work? Well, they work where you have two people, and you're seeing them at the front end of their relationship, just when they're getting to know each other, right? And the whole arc, the plot of the movie, is these two people moving towards falling in love and getting married. And of course, that's where the movie ends, is after they get married, right? And so this idea of happily ever after in these romantic comedies is really this idea that the passion and the love they feel for each other at the end of that movie is going to last for a lifetime. That's what we believe, right? That's what we think. But you all know, some of you in here have been married for a couple of years, I have a feeling, right? Is that true? (coughs) True. Yeah, you have. And you know that if you've been married for that period of time, that that's not really the way love operates. The way that we see it in film, the way that we see it in movies, that's not necessarily reflective of the way love is. It may be the way people want it to be, but that's not the way that it is. And this has had a negative effect on our culture in a really bad way. Because what I see is, I see young people, old people alike, they have come to this conclusion that love, when you're really in love, it's about somebody serving my needs. So as long as this person makes me happy, then I'm in love. But the moment they stop serving my needs, the moment they stop making me happy, well, I question whether or not I'm in love with that person anymore. But you all know, that's not love, right? Love is when two people are mutually invested in serving the other person. That makes sense. Love is when two people are mutually invested in serving the other person. Let me give you an example. So it would be like this. It would be like you find somebody who you're in love with. It means you're willing to give everything you have to this person, and that person is willing to give everything they have to you. Which, if you're both doing that, then what happens? Are your needs going to be taken care of? Absolutely they will be. That's when love is working at its best. Everybody's needs are being taken care of because everybody's thinking about the other. So regardless of how many words you might have in a language to describe love, if you see love fundamentally as being an act of giving, then that love is always going to bring you joy. But here's the problem. When you see love as an act of giving, it's a little bit risky, isn't it? Because when you put your heart out there, you make yourself vulnerable. And that's exactly what Sunette Gerber was talking about, was she was saying, you know, when you put yourself out there, somebody can shoot you down. It's not easy. You can get hurt. And so I think what happens is, a lot of people, they say, well, love is something I really want to receive rather than something I want to give. 
And of course, that's the great thing, right? If you're willing to just receive love, well, you can just shower your love upon me, and then there's no risk for me, so I don't need to get hurt, do I? But that's not love. That's narcissism. And narcissism is, of course, love of self. Right. It's about my needs, my wants, my desires. It's all about me. So even though the English language, even though it lacks the ability to be able to describe love in all these different layers, what it does better than any other language, in my opinion, is it describes that love is risk. Love is about risk. And the truth is, even though there's 30 different words for love in the Greek language, if you are not willing to take a risk and go all in with it, then you're never going to really experience the fullness of that love. And so for me, when I see the English word love, what I think is love is about risk. Indeed, love is the greatest risk that any of us have ever taken in our lives. It is the truth. And so what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about today is why we as human beings, why we're not really willing to fully invest in the love that we have, why we tend to, even when we love other people, to keep ourselves a little bit at a distance, and how that mentality affects our ability to really appreciate the love that we have and the people who are around us. So you're ready to do that. That's what we're going to do with our remaining time together. And I want to start on this by talking about the first gospel reading, the gospel from John. Now this happens... This little scene with Jesus, it's at the end of the gospel, and so it's after Jesus has died and he's in resurrection mode at this point. So he's out, he's on a beach, he's having breakfast with his disciples, and he's engaging them in conversation, and he ends up talking to Peter. Now, just as a little bit of backdrop here, do you remember what Peter did at the trial and crucifixion of Jesus in the story? You do? Okay, good. Okay, I'm glad. Last service, it didn't seem like anybody had ever been to Good Friday before, so... I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So, Peter, he wasn't exactly like, yeah, Jesus is my man, right? No, what does he do? He turns around and runs the other way. He's like, hey, I don't even know that guy. Never met him before, right? He runs away. And so Jesus, he asks this very pointed question. He says, Peter, do you love me? Now, the word for love that Jesus uses in Greek here is agape, which is that unconditional God love. And so what Jesus is asking Peter is he's saying to him, Peter, do you love me unconditionally in the same way that I love you unconditionally? And of course, what's the answer to that question? No, right? I mean, because if he did, he wouldn't have abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. So, It's interesting because if you read this in the Greek, you realize something fascinating is going on because Peter kind of owns up to this a little bit because when he responds to Jesus, he says, Lord, you know that I love you. But the word for love that he uses is philia, which is that friendship kind of love. So Jesus is saying, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter's like, yeah, I love you. You know, like a friend. Now, he's calling a spade a spade, is he not, in that situation? Now, it's not to say, I mean, you heard Beth talked about in the video how she has a very close friendship with Colleen. And that's a very close bond, very deep and intimate. And perhaps in that situation, it is unconditional. 
But for many of us, I think for our friendships, it might be a deep and intimate connection, but I don't know if unconditional necessarily applies to that situation. And what's interesting is if you go back a few chapters in John's Gospel, Jesus makes this really interesting statement. He says, No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. In this sense, what he's doing in this is he's redefining how we think of love of friends. For Jesus, anyway, when you really love your friends, you're willing to sacrifice your very life for those friends. So what this means is, is that in this conversation, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And are you willing to sacrifice yourself in the way that I love you unconditionally and I sacrifice myself for you? And crazy enough, Peter's like, no, actually I don't. Because he asks this question three times. And each time he says, philia, philia, philia. I love you like a friend. Now that's tough, isn't it? I mean, that's the crazy thing is when you go out and you say, I love you unconditionally and it's not returned. This is why love is so dangerous. Because when you put your heart out there, when you put yourself into someone, they may not reciprocate. Or even worse, they might love you for a time and then change their mind. I think every single person in here, you understand on some level or another the hurt and the pain that comes along with having your love rejected. It hurts to pour your love into somebody only to have that love thrown back in your face. And some people are so wounded by this that they close themselves off to loving entirely. They look at the scar that's been formed on their heart and they say, well, that's a constant reminder to me that I never want that to happen ever again. Now, for some of us, we get this wound when we're young. Like when we're growing up in our homes, we learn from an early age because our parents, for whatever reason, they are not willing to truly love us. And so we learn early on we need to be cautious of love. For others, it happens when we start to date. We try to find our mate, right? So it's through the dating process of coming together with somebody, loving them, and having that break apart. And sometimes it happens where you get married and you end up getting divorced. It's very hurtful, very painful. Sometimes it happens when your children later on will reject you. Say, I don't want anything to do with you. Or when your friends reject you. But regardless of how it happens, one of the saddest things that I see at my time as a pastor are people who have made a decision that they will no longer allow themselves to experience love. They walk around in this state of constant numbness. They kind of float through life because it's easier to keep the world at a distance than it is to give themselves permission to truly experience love. It's a gamble that they're simply not willing to take because the risks outweigh the benefits. But let me ask you a question. What if God loved the way that we love? What if God was doing the risk assessments, you know, weighing the consequences and the benefits of loving us? Do you think God would still love us if that's the way God looked at it? No, I don't think so at all. I agree. I don't think God would love us in the slightest if God looked at it that way. Because just imagine for one moment. Let's, let's get into God's mindset. Imagine that you can see the world from a bird's eye view for a second. And you can see every single human being on the planet. 
All seven and a half billion of us. Right? All at one time. You can see what they're doing. You can hear what they're thinking. You can feel what they're feeling. You know what they're going to do next. Now, you all have lived some life, right? You know that most of what we're thinking and feeling and doing is not exactly positive for the vast majority of us, right? So I think if you took all those people, you put them together, and you could experience that for just one second, I don't think you would be able to handle it. I don't think any of us would. I think we would be overwhelmed by the negativity. I think we would literally be crushed under the weight of all the hurt and the pain that we inflict on ourselves and each other. I think we would literally be incapable of being able to love in the face of that much darkness. But thankfully, God is able to love in the face of that much darkness. When you look at what the Bible tells us about God, and that's all we know is what the Bible tells us. We don't know if it's true or not, but it says that God's love is a little bit different from our love. That God's love has no boundaries. It has none of these barriers that prevent God from loving us. And I'm not trying to say that God doesn't hurt when we hurt. That God doesn't care about the fact that you struggle. I really think that God looks at us and is really overwhelmed and feels for the tragedy of human existence. But the difference between God and us is that no matter how bad it gets for us, no matter how we hurt each other, no matter how many bombs go off, no matter what we do, God will never stop loving us. And I think that that's really important. God will never stop loving us even when we don't reciprocate because that's the truth of unconditional love, isn't it? When when somebody comes to you and says, I'm going to love you all the way, you turn your back and walk away, and that person says, I'm going to love you anyway. That's hard to do. And that's the root of what Jesus is saying in the Scripture today. When he says, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now think about that for a second. The word love that he's using right there to say love your enemies is agape, that unconditional, unconditional love. That you're supposed to love your enemy, the person who you dislike and hate the most, you are to love them unconditionally. Why? Because that's the way God loves us. Think about it for a second. Just think about if God, if you could have a conversation, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, most of what you do, God should sit there and say, I don't want anything to do with you. You go and you do what you're going to do, but I'm going to be over here. And instead, God looks at us and says, you're not my enemy. I don't hate you. I love you unconditionally because I love you for who you are, the good and the bad. And the reason we know this, and the reason why you need to know Jesus' story, is because his story teaches us what God is like. His story teaches us how God loves, the depth of that love. Even if you're like Peter, even if you sit there and you say, I don't want anything to do with you. I never knew you, and see you later. Even if you do that, God is still standing there saying, I love you, and I'll welcome you home whenever you want to come back. Even if you don't love me, I refuse to stop loving you. That's the kind of love that God has for us. And the question is why? Why does God choose to love us when God knows that we're going to break his heart. 
And I think the answer to that question is found in something that Don McGrath said, which I really loved when we asked the question, do you think love is worth the risk? And I just love the way she said it. She goes, I can't imagine a life without love. Can you? No. I can't. I think love is always worth the risk. Always worth the risk. And you know, I look at my life and I think of the accomplishments that I've made, the places I've gone. None of that matters at all. What matters the most when I look back at my life are the moments that love has provided for me. Those are the moments that matter. Those are the moments that make my life worthwhile. You know, when I do funerals for people, I will sit down and I will ask the family, I'll say to them, tell me about this person. What were they like? And of course, they're going to take me through their narrative, the narrative of their life, the ups and downs, the successes, the failures, all of those things, right? But the thing that I wait for more than anything else is I wait for them to tell me about how this person loved. Because when they start to tell me about that, that's when I know we're getting to the core of who this person is. And it's at that moment where I can really learn about who they were because I can always tell how much they loved by the tears in the room. When somebody has loved with their whole heart, when they've given themselves unconditionally to the world, to their friends, to their family, even to their enemies, there's not a dry eye in the house. Isn't that how you want to be remembered? I mean, that's how I want to be remembered, as somebody who loved. I don't care about any of the things I do. I want to be remembered as a person who loved. And what that means is you have to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to love with your whole heart. Even if you've been burned in the past and the scar still hurts, I want you to consider opening yourself to loving with your whole heart. Loving without limits. My prayer for you today is that you wouldn't be fearful of the unknown but that you would allow love into your heart in such a way that you could experience all of the beautiful possibilities that love has for you. Yes, you're going to get hurt. Tell you that up front. No secret on that one. You're going to get hurt. But you know what? It's worth the risk to go out and to take that chance because what you get back is so worth it in the long run. So my prayer for you, I hope that you will go out from here, that you will find those people who you've been keeping at a distance, those people who you have said, I cannot love you, I will not love you, and that you would wrap your arms around them and you would invite them in, whether they be your family, your friends, strangers, neighbors, enemies, whoever they might be, I ask you to go out and to love them with your whole heart. Because if God is willing to take the risk on loving us, then shouldn't we be willing to take the risk on loving others? I think we should. Because to me, love is always worth the risk. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.